So was it worth all that to save all those kids? Was it worth all that time and money and effort? Was it worth this man giving his life to be able to rescue these boys? I think most of us would say uh, that it was. But I kind of want to relate this in a spiritual sense. You know, I'm glad that Jesus thought I was worth saving. You know, Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And what we're going to look at in Scripture today is uh, some stories, really, we might call it three parables, but it's really one uh, where we see how much Jesus thought that we were worth looking for. And, and, I, and I want us to see that and uh, grasp that and grasp uh, the, and experience the grace of God today. But even beyond that, I also want us to think about the question is, do we believe and live like that people are worth looking for? Are we making any sacrifices? Is there anything that, that we're doing to try to rescue other people uh, as well? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 this morning. And uh, this is really probably one of the most familiar chapters of Scripture in all the Bible. I mean, for a lot of people, even you know, not Christians, maybe don't have that much of a, a Bible background, there's at least some familiarity with the parable of the prodigal son is what it's uh, normally called. Uh, I don't really think that's the best uh, name for it, honestly. And uh, I want to try to help you maybe even see it from just a little uh, different perspective, maybe in some ways than you have uh, b- before. So, Really, uh, we need to kind of do a little background work, I think, to be able to properly understand this. So in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to walk through the, the, the whole chapter uh, this morning, but uh, I, I want to give us some context. So uh, let's start and look, let's look at the first three verses and understand who Jesus is talking to and what's really going on here uh, to hopefully help us really understand what he's saying, okay? So it says, then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. Now, let's look at the the first couple of verses in particular here. They go back to verse 1. There's there's really two different groups of people that Jesus is addressing as he tells uh, this this parable. And and what we're going to see here really It's one parable with three stories that are all essentially the same, except when you get to the third story, there's a twist at the end, okay? But the first group of people that that Jesus is talking to here says, all those tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And and, and this is a common uh, thing in the Gospels. And, And one of the things that's so amazing about Jesus is that people who weren't like Jesus like Jesus. People who weren't like Jesus, liked Jesus. Now, I wonder if the same thing can be said of us. I I think a lot of times we're more like the Pharisees in this story than we are Jesus, which is ultimately the point 
of what he's saying here. But it says the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. Now, who were the tax collectors and, and, and the sinners? Well, probably our most uh, familiarity with tax collectors in the Bible is if you ever went to vacation Bible school when you were a kid, you sang the Zacchaeus song, right? Now, I know you all want me to sing, but uh, I'm not going to grace you with that this morning. But, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, and, you know, climbed up the sycamore, all that kind of thing. And, and so, uh, but you got to understand that, like, in Judaism, in, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel at this time, the most unpopular people around were the tax collectors, I mean, you know, if you ranked like the least popular people uh, in our society today, there'd be like pedophiles and drug dealers and people are in the mafia, and that, that would be probably like at the bottom of the list for us. Well, for them, it was the tax collectors. There were two or three things that they hated uh, about the tax collectors. I mean, you know, one is, uh, you know, they were dishonest. They would, the way they made money and the many of they got rich because, uh, you know, they would charge what they had to for taxes, but then whatever they could collect above that came to them. But that wasn't even the worst part about it. The worst part about it was they considered them traitors because they were in cahoots with the Romans. And, of course, they couldn't stand being occupied by the Romans. I mean, I mean think about it. Um, you know, the Roman Empire ruled, you know, ancient world, England to India. Now, you know, today you think about the United States uh, of America. If, say, an uprising... Um, took place in a revolt, a rebellion in, say, Texas. That's possible, right? The right wing. Or, or say, California, like the left wing. Washington, D.C., is not, it's not going to be a big deal for them to go squelch that, right? We can send out troops in no time. We can take care of this. In the ancient world, if you have a rebellion in one part of your empire, it may take you six months, a year to find out what's going on and actually be able to get troops there to deal with it. So how do you prevent that kind of thing? Well, to prevent that kind of thing, you have to have a massive army that's stationed in force throughout your empire uh, that, you know, is, is just ruthless with the people, which, you know, the Romans were. I mean, there's instances where they would, you know, conquer an area and they would crucify thousands of people outside the city. You know, they would rape women, children, those kind of things, in many cases with the soldiers. And, and so how do you support this kind of massive army that enables you to rule this much of the world? Taxation. Who's collecting the taxes? It's the tax collectors. So what do the people think about them? They hate them. Jesus is hanging out with them. Something for us to think about. I mean, we, we reject people for a whole lot less reason than that. But then he says the tax collectors and the sinners... Like the, in, in the sinners here, I mean, you know, biblically everybody's a sinner, but this in the minds of the Pharisees is like a special category of people. It would have been like the prostitutes, but it would have also been those who were diseased, those who were crippled, those who were 
blind, those kind of things. Remember in John 9, there was a man who was born blind, and they're asking, like, where did his sin come from? So they thought if you had some kind of incurable physical ailment, it was a sign that you were a sinner and that the judgment of God was upon you. And so uh, Jesus is basically hanging out here with the outcast of society. And one of the amazing things about Jesus that we need to learn as well is he accepted people without approving their lifestyle. And we're called to be like him. But then you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. You've got the religious leaders, and they come along and they complain. And you see, in the minds of the people, the tax collectors were the bad guys, and the Pharisees were the good guys. Now, you know, if we're trying to, you know, measure our righteousness on a human scale... None of us are living up to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, at a minimum, memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Anybody memorized the first five books of the Old Testament? Anybody memorized one of them? I could ask how many of you have actually finished reading Leviticus at some point in your life. I mean, you know, if we're you know, trying to have a self-righteousness contest here, we're going to lose to the Pharisees every day. I mean, so the people thought they're like real spiritual and all these kind of things. And so they come along, and in their self-righteousness, they say, this man, this Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. So he's like a in their minds, like a terrible person. I mean, you ever, you ever thought about this? And of course, we know, you know, ultimately it was God's plan. But from a human perspective, why would they have killed Jesus? I mean, he's going around, he's doing good. He's helping people, he's healing people. I mean, he's healing all kinds of people. I mean, if there's a guy around that's like healing people's diseases, why do you want to kill him? That doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, if there's somebody here that, you know, could heal us when we were sick, we're probably not wanting to get rid of him. Well, why did they want to get rid of him? Well, because of chapters like this. Because of who he's hanging around with, and then they challenge him and how he responds to them. So it says he spoke this parable to them in in, in verse 3. Who's the them? Well, I think it's probably everybody there, but in particular, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's... um, He's basically dealing with their self-righteousness. See, I think a lot of times we read this chapter, we focus on the younger brother and him, uh, you know, going to the pig pen, all these kind of, and we need to hear that. But we also need to hear the side of it. Many of us need to hear this side of it more than the other side of it, uh, that Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees, you're like the older brother here, and, and you, know, you need to repent of your religion just like he needs to repent of his rebellion. Most of us here, you know, and, and we all have some rebellion and maybe all some religion, but most of us, our default mode is more toward Pharisee than prostitute. I mean, that's the reality. Um, you know, I, when, when I was a kid one time, we went on vacation uh, to the beach. And uh, some of you heard this story before, but my younger brother, we thought we had lost him. I mean, we couldn't find, find him. We're kind of going crazy. Uh, we're looking everywhere and, you know, kind of run up down the beach, all these kind of things. And ultimately what we learned after a little while of thinking he was lost is he came out, revealed himself. He was just hiding from us. <laughs> he was just playing a joke on us. And um, my parents were so relieved that they didn't punish him. 
And I got mad. I mean, I thought they should have beat the boy. I mean, they would have if it were me, I think. You know, I was the older one. And, uh, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you know, they're rejoicing and I'm ticked off. I guess, you know, I'm showing my default mode as Pharisee, right? Uh, Because that's, uh, that's what Jesus is getting at here. So that's the context, okay? Like I said, there's three stories in this chapter but it's really one parable. They all have the same point, but then there becomes a twist at the end of the third story. Now, as we walk through these three stories, you got to see there's four common characteristics in each one. And if you see this, it'll help you understand the twist. There's four characteristics to each of these three stories we're going to read. In all of them, something's lost. Someone's looking. What's lost is found. And then there's rejoicing. There's a celebration. There's a party once that is found. And then ultimately, what we need to see is these stories are pointing us to the grace of God. That's ultimately what this is about. So uh, let's let's walk through them, okay? Uh, Luke 15, verse 4. Jesus starts, and as he tells this parable, he says this to them. It says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? So, if a man has a hundred sheep, which would have been, made him probably moderately wealthy in, the, in that uh, society, but one of the sheep disappears, Jesus is saying, you're going to go look for that sheep. Uh, you know, somewhat because of an attachment, because shepherds cared for their sheep, Somewhat because of the monetary value of it. And those of you who have pets, you do the same thing, right? You lose your dog. I mean, when I was a little kid, my dog disappeared one time. We, you know, we couldn't find him. You know, we looked. And then we found that he had been run over by a car, and it broke my heart. Um, you know, Fluffy, your little cat, runs away. You're going to go look for uh, your, your, your little cat, okay? Maybe at my house, hanging out with the Holtz cat on, on our porch. But please come and look for it if that ever happens. But, I mean, you, you, you lose your animal. You're going to go look, right? Because it has value to you. And so, since when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep, which was lost. Something was lost. Someone's looking. It's found. Then there's rejoicing. Here's the point, Jesus says. I say to you, likewise, that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He's not saying that sheep or animals are as valuable as people, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think today. Uh, We're the most valuable value, the highest of God's creation because we're made in his image. But he's using the sheep as an analogy and saying, if a shepherd's going to go look for one lost sheep and rejoice when he finds it, well, in heaven, uh, there's rejoicing when one lost sinner comes home. And by implication, we ought to be looking and we ought to be rejoicing. That's what we ought to be about as a church instead of being like the Pharisees. Okay? So that's the first of the three stories. Remember, one parable, though. So then he's kind of, in a sense, arguing from the lesser to the greater. But he starts with an animal, then he goes to money. He says, what woman having ten silver coins? 
If she loses one coin, this coin was a denarius. It may have been like her dowry when she, when she got married. But if this was all she had, uh, this would have been like a day's wages. So she was very poor. So think about it. If you just lost one-tenth of your income or, or one-tenth of your financial worth, you'd probably be looking for it, right? Uh, so it says, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which was lost. Likewise, I say to you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same thing. Something's lost. Someone's looking. It's found. And then they rejoice. And Jesus is saying, this is how heaven works. We're lost. God's looking. When we're found, heaven rejoices. Heaven throws a party. And so once again, the implication for us is if we're Christians, then we ought to be looking and we ought to be rejoicing when lost sinners come home. Instead of categorizing people and judging people and rejecting people, we ought to be looking for people and we ought to be rejoicing and have the heart of Jesus instead of the heart of a Pharisee. That's the point. But he's not finished. Once again, he's going from the lesser to the greater. So he's gone sheep, coin, now he gets to people. So he says, certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, you know, I understand a couple things about this. According to the law, if there, if there were two brothers, uh, they stood, you know, to inherit their father's estate. Two-thirds of it would have gone to the older brother. One-third of it would have gone to the younger brother. But when would it have come to them? It would have come to them when the father died, right? So you need to understand the request here. He's saying, I don't want to wait till you die. Give me what's mine. Give me what you owe me now. That's pretty brazen, isn't it? I mean, that, that's pretty, that, that's offensive. And, and this is a story, uh, you know, it's not somebody we know, but don't you just want to smack this kid? <laughs> I mean, in essence, what he's saying is that I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. I don't want you, I want your stuff. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, that's offensive. But, do you understand that that's all of our natural hearts toward God? Do you understand this is the essence of sin? This is what makes us lost uh, even more than just particular things we do. It's our heart attitude uh, of saying, God, I don't really want you. I just want your stuff. I don't want a relationship with you, but I want my life to be good. I want to be blessed. I want to have what I want to have. I want to be happy. I want to enjoy life, but I don't want you. I want to do my own thing, run my own life, live my own way. That's, that's the essence. That's the root nature of sin is we want to be our own God apart from God, and we need to hear that, and we need to feel that. 
Some people are like, well, you know, we're just human, we're imperfect, what makes sin so bad? That's what makes sin so bad, because in essence, this is what we've all said to God. But then I want you to notice his response. And, and, and something, I think there's something here, maybe, maybe not you, but I, I have, I've glossed over this. I've, this hasn't hit me when I've read this until about two weeks ago. It says, so he divided to them... His livelihood. In my mind, and in all the probably hundreds of times I've read this, somehow in my mind, I read this so, so he divided to him. But it says he divided to them. So, so I want you to understand, he went ahead and gave both of them their inheritance. So he just didn't give it to the younger brother. He gave it to the older brother too. And that's important to understanding the twist at the end of the story. And you say, well, why would, uh, why would the father indulge this son in this way? I mean, why would he give it to him? Why would, didn't he just smack him or stone him? I mean, he could have invoked the law and, and, and stoned him for uh, treating him like this. Well, aren't you glad that God didn't stone us? God didn't kill us? God didn't send us to hell the first time we sinned? It's a picture of his grace. It's patience. But beyond that, it, it, it's this reality. Part of God's grace is God lets us go sometimes in our sin until we exhaust ourselves, until we come to the end of ourselves. Because unfortunately, sometimes that's the only way we're going to come to him. See, some of you are away from God. Either you're not a Christian or you are a Christian and you're not walking with the Lord. And you're going to come to God because God's chosen you. He's called you. That's his plan. The only question is, is how much pain are you going to put yourself through until that happens? Because it's going to happen. Uh, eventually, it's going to happen. Uh, I mean, God will not let you sin successfully when it's all said and done. Um, either, uh, apart from God, as uh, George McDonald said, you're either going to fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. That's the reality. So he gave it to him. And it says, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together because he didn't want the relationship, he just wanted the stuff. He journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He wasn't ready to handle the, the, the responsibility. You know, he needed a Dave Ramsey course. I mean, he just blew through all of his money, basically being immoral. I mean, you get later in the story, you know, he blew it on prostitutes is, is basically what he did. So he's immoral. He's rebellious. This is their heart. But then he says, when he spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Because the reality is somebody, and I don't know who to attribute this quote to, and it's probably not exactly how it goes, is, but it's true. Sin will take us farther than we ever want to go and will cost us more than we ever want to pay. That's the reality. So uh, there's a famine. He's blown all his money. He doesn't have anything. And, and at this point, you got to understand, the Pharisees, man, they're getting hyped up. They're like, go, Jesus. Get them. Tell them. 
Tell them how bad they are. Tell them this is where they are. Tell them they're out in the pig pen. Get these sinners. I mean, they're, they're like, they're, they're hopeful now. They're maybe thinking this Jesus guy, he's coming around. Uh, you know, he's got a chance. We, we can teach him and get him on the right track. And he's going to tell these people. And, you know, sometimes we do the same thing. Don't we? We listen to a message and think, man, I hope he or she gets it. Man, I hope my husband's listening to this. My wife, she really needs to hear, hear, hear this message for somebody else, right? It says something about her hearts. And then it says he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. I mean, this is pretty low when you got a good Jewish boy feeding the pigs. I mean, that can't go much lower than that. It says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. No one gave him anything. And you know what? Sometimes, listen to this. If you've got a prodigal in, in your life, sometimes you've got to let them go so they can come to the end of themselves so then they'll repent and experience the grace of God. If you start carrying their consequences, you may getting, be getting in between what God is doing in, in their lives. You've you got to let them go. Sometimes you got to let them go and let God deal with them and let them experience the consequences of their actions. And, and so when that had happened, God used this as when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. In other words, he's been broken. He's come to a place of repentance and that's where any of us have to get to before we can really come to God. We have to come to a place of brokenness over our sin, a place of repentance, a place where we're just, we're just drawn to come to him. We know that his mercy and his grace are our only hope. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves or fix it ourselves. And he's coming back humbly saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so verse 20 says, he arose and came to his father. I mean, he, I mean, he came back home. It, it, it may be the neighbors, when they see him, they're probably gossiping about him as he's walking towards his house. You know, he doesn't know what awaits him. He doesn't know how his father's going to receive him, but he must trust his father's heart enough to think that he's going to receive him. But notice what it says. It says, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. That's one of the most powerful phrases in the Bible. Because for him to see him, he had to be looking for him. The Father is looking for you. If you're away from him, he's not condemning you, even though he has every right. He's looking for you. That's why you're here. You're not here by accident. You're here because the Father is looking for you. And look what he did. He said he had compassion. But then he ran. You know, older men didn't run in that society. That was considered undignified. The neighbors would have definitely been talking about that. But that was his heart. He, he, he just didn't see him. He ran to his son. He says he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I mean, there's brokenness, there's confession, there's repentance, there's humility here. 
But notice how the father responds. He didn't say you, he didn't say you're right. He doesn't give him a lecture. He throws a party. He says, bring out the best robe, which would have either been his own robe or the robe reserved for the guest of honor. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, which was an indicator of authority. And put sandals on his feet. And the thing that's so amazing about that is in that day and time, the sons would have worn sandals, but the slaves would not have. So really what he's saying to his son in this action is, I'm not, bringing you, I'm not accepting you back as a servant. I'm taking you back as a son. Uh, we're having a party. I'm putting the robe on you. Uh, I'm giving you the, the ring of my authority back. This is who you are to me. And it says, bring the fatted calf and kill it. And they would only done that for the, you know, the biggest occasions. This would have been a huge party, probably invited the whole uh, community. He says, let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and, they be, and is found, and they began to be merry. And, you know, this tells us a couple more things about God's grace. And you know, I said before, sometimes God in his grace, let, it lets us come to the end of ourselves, but also we need to see that God, in his grace, because of his grace, he thinks that we're worth looking for, even though sin makes us unworthy. Because of his grace, God has deemed us worth looking for, even though in reality, sin makes us unworthy. You know, this tells us, uh, this verse 24 uh, tells us something else about grace, and that is, the purpose of grace is not to make bad people good. It's to make dead people live. That's grace. There's not good and bad people. There's Jesus and the rest of us that are spiritually dead. And our only hope is his grace through his finished work on the cross, through the fact that on the cross he died for our sins in our place, and then he rose from the dead to give us new life. Jesus is ultimately the older brother that we need. That's the, ultimately the point of all this. But then, here's the twist. He said it was three stories that's really one parable. He said all three stories, there's something's lost, right? Somebody's looking. It's found. And then there's rejoicing. So they start to rejoice. But not everybody is rejoicing. Because it says now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house... He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And, and I just wonder now if maybe the Pharisees who were listening just were starting to get a little nervous. Because they were like, Jesus, why didn't you stop there? You got these people good, but now they're about to get their medicine. This is who he's talking to here is the Pharisees. And so the, the servant said to him, your brother's come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Everybody's rejoicing, except his older brother's not rejoicing. He's angry. He's angry. And anger is a common characteristic of religious people. He's angry. We're angry at the world, and we're angry at sinners, and angry at all these bad things that are going on. But... Don't sinners sin? Isn't that just kind of how it works? Isn't that who we were? I mean, why would we condemn people for being who we were before we experienced the grace of God? He was angry and he wouldn't go in. 
And then notice the father's grace towards him. See, because this was an act of, of disrespect as well. Maybe not on the same level as the other son, but kind of similar. But it says his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I, have, I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might, might, might make merry with my uh, friends. Now, once again, this is a characteristic of being religious, of being self-righteous. Look at what I've done. Look at how faithful I've been. I've never disobeyed you. Except he is right now. You never gave me a young goat. Well, he didn't want to give him a goat. He wanted to give him, kill the fatted calf. That's the, he didn't get the father's heart. He had already given him his entire inheritance. Remember uh, what we read, them, not him, back at the beginning? He says, as soon as this son of yours, can you just hear the condescension and the self-righteousness and the anger just kind of oozing from his voice? As soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. You know, my, my brother's out here running around with prostitutes, and you're throwing a party for him. Listen, I don't know how we can... I don't know how Jesus could have highlighted the difference between grace and religion any more than that. But notice the father's response. He said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and, and was lost and is found. And you know what Jesus is ultimately saying here? He's saying that those who are religious and self-righteous stand just as much in the need of God's grace as, the, as those who are outwardly rebellious. You see, we're all sinners. We have a different default mode. For some people, it's rebellion. For some people, it's self-righteousness. But the point is, it all keeps us from a relationship with the Father. So I don't know what your default mode is, but ultimately the point is, <clears throat> is that we need Jesus. L let me close by reading something to you from Tim Keller and his book, The Prodigal God, that's about Luke chapter 15. And, 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 and I think he, he just captures what this is saying, okay? And I think if you listen to what he's saying here, because I think if we get this, It'll help us get the grace of God. It'll help us get the, the gospel. It'll help us understand ourselves. I think it will help us even understand uh, some of the, the conflict that we have going on in our society, in our nation today. So he writes this. <clears throat> he says, elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. So religious and moral people can be avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord as much as the younger brothers who say they don't believe in God and define right and wrong for themselves. Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what's wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. Why? 
Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. Jesus does not divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control themselves. We're just going about it in different ways. Even though uh, both sons are wrong, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, the good news, is a completely different spirituality. Listen to this. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism. Nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It is something else altogether. The gospel is distinct from the other two approaches. In its view... The view of the gospel, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize this and change. In other words, we're all in the same boat. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world in two. The good people, like us, are in, and the bad people, who are the real problem with the world, are out. Younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing, saying, no, the open-minded people and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world are out. Now, does that not sound like the root of most of the debates, political and otherwise, in our society today? And you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying everybody's wrong. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's in the same boat. Everybody says, me. Uh, Keller says this. He said, Jesus says, the humble are in and the proud are out. Luke 18, 14. The people who confess they aren't particularly good or open-minded are moving toward God because the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. Do you know today that the ultimate need of your life is the grace of God? Whether you're running from God out in the pig pen or whether you're the most righteous moral person around, all of us need the grace of God. And the only way to receive it is to admit that need, to admit our sinfulness, our our rebellion, our self-righteousness, our our resistance of God, our desire to be our own God, our our desire to use God and to humble ourselves and and to come to him through Jesus and through his cross, confessing our sin, asking for forgiveness by faith, receiving his grace. That's what God's calling some of you to do today. Some of you, maybe you're a Christian, but you've not been walking with the Lord. You're out in the far country, and the Father invites you to come home to him today. But then, for those of us who are Christians, is the way that we're living, does it indicate that we think people are worth looking for? I mean, when was the last time we prayed for somebody to come to the Father? When was the last time we went and shared the good news of Jesus with somebody? I mean, do we have the heart of the Father? 
or do we have the heart of a Pharisee? Are we good at throwing stones and protesting and complaining and making social media comments about everything that's wrong in the world? Or are we good at going to people, meeting them where they are, and helping them become fully devoted followers of Christ? You know, we're doing this series, This Is Us, and about our mission and core values and that kind of thing. And one of our core values just says the church is the missionary. Lost people matter to God. So the church is here to be the missionary to the community and to the world. Do we have the heart of the Father or do we have the heart of a Pharisee? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, I pray.